Welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. Riverside Church is a community of believers striving side-by-side for the gospel in the greater New Orleans area. For more information about Riverside Church, go to riversidelife.org. course of the Advent series, we're going to be going through a series called The I Am in the Manger. And what we're doing through this series is taking all of the I Am statements of John, that we of Jesus, that we find in the Gospel of John. You may know this already, but if you don't, there are seven of them. Jesus proclaims that I am bread, I am light, I am the door, I am the shepherd, I am the resurrection, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the vine. And so we see that throughout the Gospel of John. And what we're going to do this morning to kind of introduce the series of the I Am in the Manger is talk about the I Am and what that means and what Jesus is proclaiming as he proclaims that I am the great I Am. What I'm praying for throughout this series is that for all of you Grinches whose hearts are two sizes too small, That by putting our eyes on the I am, that our love and affections for Christ would increase. And for all of you Charlie Browns out there that are depressed and discouraged over the commercialization of Christmas, I pray that as we go through this, that you will get your eyes on Christ, the great I am, and that your faith would increase and that your trust of Christ would increase and that you would even see, as I began to talk about last week, is to see this great soul revival as we set our eyes on Christ, that perhaps this Advent season, this wonderful season where we get to celebrate all that Christ has done, that our eyes would get upon Christ, and in doing so, our affections for Christ would increase, and that even for going through this Advent season, that perhaps among the people of Riverside even, that we would see great revivals in our soul. So this is for any soul desiring to be revived this Advent season and rediscover and rejoice anew in the glorious mystery that the one who is lying in the manger, as a children's book so wonderfully puts, the one who was lying in the manger was sleeping under the very stars that he had made. It's the I am who is in the manger. Jesus makes this undeniable claim in John chapter 8. And so go ahead and turn your Bibles to John chapter 8. I want, before we talk about the I am in the manger, I want us to fast forward some 30 years into the life of Jesus where he's having this discussion or this argument, you could probably say. It's kind of like a, a Twitter discussion. People say that they're discussing things, but really they're, they're going after each other. And so Jesus is talking to these religious folks after the Feast of Booths. Jesus has just told these folks, made it clear that he is proclaiming that I am, one of those I am statements, the light of the world. And if you get to John chapter 8, verse 30, you see that many of these religious folks begin to believe. And as you will see as we kind of walk through the rest of John chapter 8, we're seeing that this belief that they had was not a genuine belief. They're very curious about what Jesus was saying and wanted to hear more, but it's not as though they had trusted him and put their faith and trust completely and totally in him. Maybe that's where you are this morning. 
that the things that you've heard about Christmas, the things that you've heard Christ say, it has you intrigued, but you still have some questions of who Jesus is. And so the question as we go through this is, am, am I a follower of Christ? Am I, am I following Jesus? Am I following the great I am? And so it's becoming clear to these religious folks that, that Jesus is proclaiming some, some pretty, making some pretty undeniable claims. He's claiming to be the light. He's claiming to be the bread. And if they are not mistaken from what they are hearing, it seems as though he is saying that he is God. That he is God in the flesh. And if he is saying that he is God, that is blasphemy. And if that is blasphemy, then he deserves to be stoned. And so they're struggling through this of what Jesus is saying. And he makes this undeniable claim. And and what's at stake here? Let's not miss this. What's at stake here is understanding who Jesus is. John chapter 1 says, In him was life, and he was the light of man. And so what's at stake here is life and death. That's what John says in John chapter 1. In him was light, and in him was life. And what he's getting after is life and death is at stake. And so when Jesus is having this conversation here, let's go ahead and pick up and read what he has to say. So Jesus said to these Jews who had believed in him, at least curious of what he is saying, Jesus says, John eight thirty one, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Not just listening, but actually abiding in his word, actually following his word, actually believing in Jesus. And he's claiming to be God. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Verse 33. And the answer, and they answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So the son has set you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have, and you do what you have heard from your father. And so Jesus is saying these very shocking things to these religious folks, these Jews who had believed. Do you hear what he's saying? He's telling them that, that you are enslaved. That you are a sinner and that you are not free. And this is absolutely shocking to them. Because they claim, according to their pedigree of who they are as Jews, that they are the people of God, which was true. But the true people of God are not only those who are born of that heritage, but those who follow the Lord. And if Jesus is God, then they must follow Jesus. And they're starting to put this together in their heads. And one of the hardest things about declaring the truth of the gospel, you've experienced this in your own life, is first you have to get people to understand that they're lost. But don't you know how good I am? Don't you know I grew up this way in this church, in this religion, or this whatever? And so they're making those claims, at least in their minds, to Jesus. Jesus, don't you know our pedigree? Don't you know all the good that we have done? Who are you to say that we are lost and that we are not free? And so Jesus is making these shocking statements to these people. That you are lost. 
You are not free. If you are to be free indeed, you must come to the Son and he will set you free. And only then will you be free indeed. Jesus is starting to really get to it. He's laying it down saying exactly of who he is. Unmistakably, undeniably, you must come to Christ. And so Jesus makes this shocking statement that they are lost and they are in bondage and that they must be set free and they must come to the Son. They must come to Jesus in order to be set free. But they, they answer him, verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. So, so you hear what they're doing. Don't, don't you know who we are? And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I've heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. So it's becoming even more shocking. Not only are you enslaved, but, but Abraham's not truly your father. Because you're not following in the way of Abraham. And so you can imagine that people who have put all of their faith and trust and hope in this are now hearing this truth. That they are not of Abraham. Don't doesn't he know his his history? Doesn't he know? Doesn't he know what he's saying? Verse forty one. You are doing the works your father did, and they said to him, "We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God." And Jesus said to them, "If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me." Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Now it's really getting serious, isn't it? Not only are you not of Abraham, but in fact, your father is the devil. That's who you are. And your will is to do your father's desires, to try to kill the son of God. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and a father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear is that you are not of God. And so Jesus is shockingly making this undeniable claim that they are not free. He's making this undeniably shocking claim that not only that, but they put their faith and hope and an identity and a pedigree and being physical sons of Abraham, that they are not free. And in fact, they are slaves of sin and their father is the father of lies, a murderer from the beginning. Their father is the devil and they are doomed unless they turn to him. So Jesus is laying it down and they know it and they don't like it. Look at what they said in verse 48. And the Jews answered him. So they kind of come back at him. They, they really have nothing, but they insult him. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They considered Samaritans unclean. And so they're showing their, their own side by saying this, but now they're declaiming that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon. You're the problem, not me. How many times perhaps we say that, that the problem is Jesus? The problem is he's too narrow, the problem of the way of Christianity is, is not wide enough. And we claim that Jesus is 
the problem. This is where they are. And Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So what's at stake is life and death. Do you believe? The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? So they're getting to it here. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? So that's what they really want to know. Now this is the heart of the question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you claim to be, Jesus? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. He's saying they don't know God. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do not know him, and I keep, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to him, here it is, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now it is absolutely clear who Jesus is claiming to be. Jesus makes his identity plain. Abraham had been dead for nearly 2,000 years and Jesus has claimed to exist prior to him. Jesus is not to be regarded as a good man or a moral teacher, but as God in the flesh, the I am. Jesus demonstrates he's God by taking the divine name and claiming it as his own. In the Old Testament, here's where he gets this statement from of being the I am. From the Old Testament, God revealed himself to Moses. Do you remember this? Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, at the burning bush, When Moses says, who you are, who are you? What does he say? He says, I am. I have always been. He is divine. Jesus is the promised Savior. He is making this undeniable claim that he is the I am. He's making this undeniable claim to the people of Abraham that all you've been looking for, all of the promises that you've been waiting for, all the promises that were given in the garden, the promise that was given in Genesis chapter 12 where the promise was made that from your offspring, Abraham, all of the nations would be blessed. Jesus is saying, I am that one. I am the promised Savior and I am God myself. I am the great I am. Jesus is declaring in this moment that he is God. He's making it clear that he is the one that Moses has met at the burning bush. He is making the one, making the claim. He is proclaiming that he is eternal. Here's the truth about Jesus. He's no beginning, no end, self-existing and self-sustaining. It means that if he is the great I am, that everything that is not God totally depends upon him. He is the standard of truth. He is the most valuable reality and person in the entire universe. He is making this claim that it's all for him. And this is who he is. I am. He's making this claim of deity. He's making this claim that he is God in the flesh. 
and they've had enough. In chapter 8, verse 59, they pick up stones. They're saying, you're a blasphemer. You're not the one. They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. He makes this undeniable claim that you can't miss. And they didn't miss it. They were listening to that conversation. They didn't miss it. They knew what he was claiming to be. He makes this undeniable claim and they have had enough. Here's what they're saying. We'd rather remain in our slavery. We'd rather not be free. We'd rather not have life. We'd rather not be delivered. We'd rather remain who we are than to follow you. Is your heart making a bold claim like that, perhaps even this morning? Here's what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 14. If you want to know the meaning of the, the reason for Christmas, Hebrews 2, 14 is a clear passage. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, so he took on flesh in order that he might die, that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. The ones who know him, the ones who follow him, the ones who are the true offspring of Abraham. Not the ones of flesh, but the ones who have been born again by the will of God. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is what Christ had come to do. He is the God of the living. He is the great I am. And they reject being rescued. And perhaps that's where you are this morning saying, no, thank you. I know you took on flesh so that I might be delivered from a lifelong subject to slavery and the fear of death. But no, thank you. I will do it myself. This is some 30 years after Jesus was born. It's very confrontational. It hits us right between the eyes. But John's prologue, the beginning of John, John chapter 1, go ahead and turn your Bibles here, is making the same statement. So Jesus is not one that just took on deity at some point, perhaps at his baptism or something like this. This is Jesus, who as the old hymn says, was Lord at his birth, who has been Lord always who at the incarnation took on flesh, but as the second person of the Trinity, the Word has always existed. He is God. Now, thinking about this, I think we find John chapter 8 perhaps a little more difficult. John chapter 1 perhaps a little easier to receive. And I was thinking about this, kind of the difference between Easter and Christmas. I find Christmas, nobody's really mad at Christmas, Right? Christmas is a little more sentimental, a little less offensive than the perhaps Easter that boldly declares that you need Jesus to be the propitiation of your sin, the resurrected one if you are to have life. And perhaps it's because we're celebrating the birth of a little baby that we feel like we can kind of put aside and put the nativity up once we're done. We don't feel too threatened or called to follow a, a child in the manger. 
And so we remain a little more sentimental about that. But the Bible is clear in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God in the beginning. That the one who's laying in the manger is God himself. And so when we celebrate Christmas, we have to not only remember this undeniable claim that Jesus has made. But number two, I want us to recall as we go through this series, the unfathomable unfathomable gift of Christ. John chapter 1. Let me read 1 through 4 and 4 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, He has made him known. What John is doing in his prologue, as we know who Christ undeniably claims he is as the great I am, he is drawing us back to the creation. This sounds a lot like Genesis 1-1, doesn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now as John opens his prologue, he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word dwelt among us and the word took on flesh that God always has been and always will be and Jesus is God. John is echoing the opening words of the New Testament. The sentence itself, the one in the beginning was the word uh, in of itself was enough to keep theologians busy for hundreds of years because on one hand the word Jesus is distinguished from God, but from a different perspective, the word is identified as being God. This sentence, more than any other passage in Scripture, is foundational for the church's confession of the doctrine of the Trinity, the belief that God is one in three persons. The Bible is proclaiming in John chapter 1 that Jesus is the one by whom and through whom, as Colossians chapter 1 says, all things were created. He is the one who created all things. Jesus was the word. The one who had created all things, get this, has entered into this world, who has taken on flesh. The one who has created has come to recreate and make all things new. And the only one who could recreate everything is the one who created everything in the beginning. The only one that can make you new is the one who spoke life into being in the beginning. And this is the one who lies in the manger, the great I am. Jesus is God. Jesus is life. He has come to make all things new. John 1.14 says this, And the Word, the eternal Word, always existed. He's God, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory as of the only Son. So the eternal word at the incarnation took on flesh. He dwelled among us. The word behind this, you perhaps have heard this before, is that Jesus has come, the word has come and tabernacled among us. The second person of the Trinity, the eternal word, took on flesh and he covered himself in our skin. 
He's reminding them of the tabernacle where the glory of the Lord was, where the glory of the Lord dwelled among God's people. And it was covered, this tabernacle was, in animal skins. And now he is saying that God himself is covered in human flesh. Not that he's somehow in disguise, but he actually became human. He's fully true human, truly human. He's dwelled among us so that we might behold the glory of God. What they got a glimpse of in the Old Testament in the tabernacle has now become fully revealed in Jesus Christ. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. And so he's making this proclamation that to see Jesus is to see God. In other words, the glory of God was the greatness of God seen visibly. When Jews looked at the tabernacle, they would see a partial and incomplete picture of the glory of God this visible display of his goodness and greatness and holiness emanating from it. John's point, one scholar writes in verse 14, is that when Jesus came to earth as a man to dwell with men, the glory of God was seen in its fullness. This is what he was confronting the religious with. He said, we want nothing to do with it. The I am dwells among us, and the I am becomes one of us. Not only does he dwell among us, he didn't just come to visit the earth kind of cloaked in human skin. He became like us in every way. The I am becomes one of us. One scholar writes it like this. In a small manger in Bethlehem, the eternal Son of God became a man. We can hold to this truth called the incarnation even if we cannot comprehend all it means. We can affirm that Jesus has always existed. And that there was a definite point in human history when he was born as a baby. Jesus is both fully God and fully human. Anyone who denies either the full deity or full humanity of Christ is a false teacher, according to John 1, 1 John 4. Affirming the full humanity of Jesus is no way diminishing his deity. The Apostle Paul affirms this reality in the book of Colossians, Colossians 2, 9, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. So Jesus comes to dwell among us. Jesus stoops to our level in love, making himself known to us. What are some of the practical applications of that? He says it here, the end of verse 18. He has made him known that we can know God. That we can know God. It also means that we have an acceptable sacrifice. That one who has taken on flesh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 18, that I just read, he did it in order so that he might set us free by giving his life as propitiation for sins. This is what God has come to do. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This means that he loves us. He identifies with us. He knows us. He can represent us before the Father. Jesus didn't just come to be our example, but he is our Savior, the only one who can set us free. This means this wonderful reality of who God, who, who Jesus is, the great I am, the one in him was life and the light of men that he withholds nothing from us. For God sent his son for us. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. 
He's our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the one who is like us in every way, yet without sin. It was him who became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. All for us, for the glory of God. He's taken on flesh to lay down his life in order to set us free. During the Advent season, I always love to pick up Athanasius, who wrote on a book called On the Incarnation. Here's what he declares about the great I am among us. That he has come into our country and foiled the plans of the enemy. Isn't that good? He has come into our country. God himself has taken on flesh in order to foil the plans of the enemy. The enemy who wants to subject us to a lifelong of fear and slavery and death. He has come to set us free. Jesus is making that known in John chapter 8. Clearly and undeniably that I am the great I am. And they say we don't want it. We want to be done with you. And Jesus is saying this is what Abraham looked forward to. He looked forward to this day where God's people would be set free by God himself. The one in whom the offspring that would set everyone free and yet you deny it. And so you aren't a son of God. You're a son of the devil. That's who you are. So who is Jesus? If he's only a man, you can afford to forget him. But if he is God, then he demands your entire allegiance. He demands your life, your all. But fear not, he will give you everything, everything you need. He will set you free. He will give you life. He will give you light. All by his grace. So what says you? Where are your eyes? Are they on Christ? The undeniable claim? Then we see in John chapter 1, not only does he make this undeniable claim of who he is, he tells us that he is this unfathomable gift of grace, God among us, dwelling among us, taking on our flesh so that we might behold the glory of God. And in him was all of grace and all of truth. Now there's this other moment, Matthew chapter 14. You can turn there or just listen. I'm going to close out with this where Jesus makes this statement again. It's a little harder to see in the, in the English. Jesus has just fed thousands of people. And you remember this, the disciples are out in the boat. Jesus is not with them at this time. Immediately, the Bible says in Matthew 14, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was alone But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So the disciples are out in the boat. Jesus is off praying. He's not with them in the boat. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to his disciples saying, Take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. Literally what Jesus says in this moment is, take heart. I am. 
don't be afraid. Take heart. The one who is with you, the one who is walking next to you, the one who is beside you, the one who is in you, is the great I am. And the Bible tells us that Peter sets his eyes on Jesus. He walks upon the water. And when he begins to look at the wind and the waves and all that's around him, he begins to sink because he has taken his eyes off the object of his faith. So I want to leave you with this. We have this undeniable claim. We have this unfathomable gift. And in Christ, we have this unwavering hope that if our eyes are on him, we hear the call of Christ who says, do not be afraid. I am. Fear not. What matters most this Advent season is whether or not your eyes are on the I am. We may waver but he does not. Fear not, I am. So, so where do we go from here? Number one, this is a call to believe. This is a call to set your heart, set your faith, set your trust, total allegiance to the great I am. If you deny Christ, you deny God himself. And you remain in slavery and death forever. So this is a call. For all who received, for all who believed, John says, he gave the right to become children of God. Are you a child of God? Or is your identity somewhere else? So this is a call to decision. This is a call to believe. This is a call to trust in the great I am. Or pick up stones and say, I'm done. This is a call to go. This is a call to tell. This is a call to proclaim. Do you remember when God reveals himself to Moses in Genesis, Exodus chapter 3 and he says, I am? He sends him on mission. He says, you are to go to tell Pharaoh this and that or the other. But he says, who am I? And, Jesus, and God responds by saying, I am. Keep your eyes on Jesus. I've called you, but I can't do it. I know you can't, but I am. Keep your eyes on Jesus. For Peter, I can't walk. Keep your eyes on Jesus. So this is a call to go. To go in the name of Jesus. To go in the great name of the great I am. For the I am sent you. Do you you remember what he says? Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am is with you. Fear not. Perhaps you're going through pain. Perhaps you're going through the difficulty of this Christmas season. We look at Christ and he says to us, fear not, take heart, I am. This is a call to believe. This is a call to go. This is a call to trust in our very own lives that no matter what we may be going through, if you have Christ, you have everything. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer.